You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, Rob. Once again, thank you, Wes Kirk, Presbyterian. Well, as you know, we're in our sermon series, One Big Story, and so uh, we're continuing to kind of think well about what, I, what I'm trying to, it's a way to teach, it's like biblical theology, what's the, what's the great storyline of scripture, and so we're in part three of four of this short sermon series, you might remember we, we were in Acts, of course you have not forgotten, we've been in Acts for quite a while, short break, and we'll get back into Acts in early November. I need to pray real quick because I need God's help as we talk about what is redemption? What does redemption mean? It's an important theological word that has massive implications on our lives. So I need God's help. Heavenly Father, we come to you, submitted to your word. As Rob just prayed, I pray again, by the powers of the Spirit reveal to us what we need to hear with our ears and with our heart. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Like I said, I began this sermon series looking at the fall. We're just kind of making our way basically from Genesis to Revelation. So we were in Genesis 1 and 2 looking at the story of creation. That's where we began, creation. From Genesis 1 and 2, we read that everything God created was good. It was good. And the crown jewel of God's creation is is man and woman. They are, you might remember, the crown jewel of God's creation because man and woman are made in God's likeness and in its image. The man and the woman were given tremendous responsibility to care for God's good creation. Hey, Adam, Eve, Look around you. It's yours. Take care of it. Cultivate it. And at this point, there's no sin in the world. There There was no condemnation. There was no shame. At several points, I highlighted this verse to explain the purity and goodness of God's creation. Here it is again as a reminder. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. They were not ashamed. The man and the woman lived in perfect harmony and purity with one another and with their maker. But trouble was looming right around the corner, right? In Genesis 3, we are introduced to a new character, the serpent. The serpent is Satan. You get that from Revelation 12, 9. And the goal of the serpent then and now is to get God's image bearers to believe lies. That's what we talked about last week. The serpent just slightly twisted the truth so that the woman would believe the lies and eventually man would believe the lies as well. That's exactly what happened to the man and woman. They believed the lies. And one of the most 
famous and infamous moments in the Bible. Eve, the woman, eats from the fruit of the tree. What particular fruit of tree? The tree of knowledge of good and evil. That's like the one tree. God's like, don't touch that one. Everything else is yours. <laughs> Just don't touch that one. Got it, Adam? Clearly not. Eve ate, then Adam ate. In a matter of moments, the creation went from good to corrupted. It went from pure to being full of pain. The heart of man at this point forward would be born with a, what we call a sin nature. All people now have a, a nature and disposition to act in rebellion and defiance toward God, its creator. The consequences of the fall is evident too, is it not? As we look around the world, at our culture, at our families, and into our own hearts, we see brokenness. We see the rebellion, we see the diseases, we see the sin. All of us, no exception, have lived out and experienced rebellion, pain, disease, and sin because of the fall. If all this is true, if everything that I've preached on regarding Genesis 1 and 2 and then Genesis 3, the fall, if, if all that is true, the chief question that arises in light of all of God's image bearers now being at enmity with God, like we're opposing God, we're hostile to God, the chief question is, can a man and woman be reconciled with its creator? Seems like we've messed up a lot, and we have. Is there a pathway back? Is it possible to go back to what, to what Adam and Eve experienced in the garden prior to the fall? If there is a way back, then what is the path toward this kind of redemption? What's the path? Before I tell you about the path toward redemption, I suppose it would be helpful to explain uh, redemption. What does that mean? Why is our church called Redemption Hill Church? Uh, real, real quick story, because I find this humor, humorous. While preparing the plant for redemption, plant Redemption Hill Church, we're still in Minnesota, I, I fielded this question like several times. Why are you calling your church Redemption Hill when Iowa is so flat? <laughs> I'll explain the answer by the time I'm done. At a basic level, redemption means being saved or rescued. Imagine with me for a moment, you're like in the middle of an ocean and you're just trying to keep your head above water. You're on your own, you're, you're an average swimmer at best, but left to yourself, by all logic, you will eventually die. You will drown or the waves will overcome you. You're just gonna get tired. You're not gonna be able to doggy paddle your way out of this. Perhaps you'll get hypothermia if the water's cold. In this scenario, what do you need? You need someone to throw you a life preserver. You need to be rescued because you know you cannot rescue yourself. What is implied of being in need of salvation or rescuing is that a person is in a situation that is, is not good. 
A person needs to be redeemed from themselves and from an adversary, the devil. A person needs to be redeemed from their sin. A person needs to be redeemed from the sin of believing in all the lies, right? On that point alone, I hope you see why we spent an entire sermon talking about sin and why it's important to have that category in your theology and in your understanding of the scriptures. If you do not have a biblical and healthy understanding of sin and your sin nature, then you will not understand redemption. You will not get it. It seems to me, like even, even if you look around a culture, there's a litany of redemption stories in literature and movies. You ever notice that? Here, here are several, several examples. In C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund, the selfish and rebellious brother, is tricked by the white witch, and he just kind of gives in to the desires of the, of the white witch. Eventually, she, he kind of goes along with the white witch's plan. He ends up in Narnian prison at the castle of the white witch, and his siblings are like, we got to go get Edmund, but there's no way. Well, Aslan, the lion and the king of Narnia, bargains with the white witch and trades his innocent life for that of the guilty Edmund, and Aslan takes the punishment. If you've seen the movie, you've read the books, it's a beautiful story of redemption. Here's another example. I don't know if you've ever seen The Lion King, like old school powers edition growing up, Lion King, like the original one, not this GFCI stuff. Old school. It was a favorite at the powers house. Um, at the beginning of the movie, there's a scene when Simba, the young lion before he gets older, is in the midst of like a stampede. It looks like he's going to be trampled upon by a herd of antelope. But in a moment of love and sacrifice, Simba's father, Mufasa, runs into the stampede, saves his son's life, but in the process of saving his son's life, he gives up his life. Here's one more story of redemption that we just see in culture. One of my favorite stories is from the movie Inside Out. I think I've used this example before. I think I, I've cried in this particular scene, believe it or not. There's a point in the movie where Joy, one of the main, main characters, finds herself with her new friend Bing Bong, great name, Bing Bong, at the bottom of this pit. Each moment they're in the pit is a step toward their death. In their scramble to escape death, Joy and Bing Bong find Bing Bong's flying wagon. Basically, uh, you sing to the wagon and it flies. And so you get this idea, we're gonna fly out of here, we're gonna sing to the wagon, we're gonna jump on and we're gonna fly out of here. They tried over and over and over again, they couldn't get out. Then all of a sudden, Bing Bong realizes the collective weight of he and Joy is preventing the wagon from reaching the top. So after several failed attempts, Bing Bong says to the dejected Joy, one more time, I have a feeling about this one. 
One last time, they climb on the magical wagon, sing the song, and then halfway up on their way to the top, Bing Bong jumps off the wagon. Joy continues to fly to the top, over the ledge, and arrives safely on solid ground and out of the pit. In her joy, she suddenly realizes Bing Bong is not with her. She looks over the ledge and down into the pit to see her friend. But Bing Bong is not sad. He is happy to have saved his friend. And in a matter of moments, Bing Bong fades away. His life is no more. It's worth noting that almost every story of redemption is mixed with sadness and hope. And I do think it's interesting for all the junk doled out by Hollywood, there is a remarkable amount of movies that talk about redemption. I don't know exactly why there are so many stories of redemption, but perhaps it is because we all sense in ourself a need for personal redemption. Perhaps whether a person admits it or not, there is a sense of sin, rebellion, and hopelessness. All people are crying out to help. All people are crying out for redemption. There's something that draws us to this type of story. The entire Bible is about the great story of redemption. And underneath it, inside this one great story, there are additional examples of redemption. The story of Noah is a story of redemption, Genesis 6, 8. Genesis 22, God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, but God intervenes and redeems. The entire story of Ruth is about redemption, Boaz being the redeemer. We get a picture of a future redemption through the story of Ruth. The story of the lost sheep in Luke 15 is about redemption. The one sheep kind of wanders away, right? Where'd he go? Well, what does the shepherd do? He grabs his staff, he grabs his rod, and he goes after that one wandering or lost sheep. We also can't forget the parable of the prodigal son or the conversion and redemption of the former Christian hater, Saul of Tarsus. One of the reasons why the Bible has such a lasting impact throughout history and today is it helps us to understand our great need of redemption and then it also answers the question, how can I be redeemed? If I know that I need to be redeemed, how is it that I can be redeemed? These questions lead us to the book of Colossians. In Colossians 1, we see the details of what it means for a person to be redeemed by God. I'm going to place a spotlight on verses 13 and 14 in a moment, but here's the lead up to those particular verses. Paul, right, Colossians, expresses a prayer to them. I'm praying for you guys. He wants them to be filled with knowledge. Lord, he prays that they would be strengthened with power from God, that they would endure, have patience in the midst of everything, have joy. I gotta tell you, if you ever want to know how to pray for this church, just open up the Colossians 1. But here's the question Why does Paul pray for the church in Colossae with so many meaningful terms? 
What would give you the right to pray for this church in a similar manner? He is able to pray in this way because they have been qualified by God through the redeeming work of Christ. Paul's prayer to the church only makes sense if they have been redeemed. Here's the latter part of his prayer in verse 12. It says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share an inheritance with the saints in the light. Qualified in that particular verse also means made sufficient, made sufficient. So the members of the church at Colossae have been qualified or have been made sufficient because of what God has done to them and for them. One of the particulars of the Greek word for qualified or made sufficient is that a person has been made sufficient by someone else. A person is not made sufficient by their own doing, but a person is made sufficient by an object outside of him or herself. The biblical principle here, that a person cannot save him or herself, does push against the idea of individualism. Here's what I mean. Americans understand individualism well. It is the idea that you can personally accomplish whatever you want, right? If you work hard, you can achieve your dreams. If you make the right choices, you will live a good life. To a degree, I appreciate the virtue of American individualism, right? Just go read the book of Proverbs and you see a, you see a lot of what it means to make good choices and to work hard. But you must also see how your redemption has nothing to do, though, with anything you accomplished. It has nothing to do with your work ethic or the choices you make. The only way you have been made sufficient in the eyes of God is because of what God has accomplished through Christ. You are not a part of that equation. It has everything to do with what God has done. There is no American individualism when it comes to the salvation and the redemption of a soul. The one who makes a person qualified or sufficient is read about in verses 13 and 14. So if you have your Bible, again, I'm going to put a spotlight on these particular verses. Here it is again. He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Right away, I want you to notice the the contrast between the saints of the light in verse 12 and darkness in verse 13. The Bible, you probably already know this, is littered with the contrast of people walking in the light and people walking in darkness. Here's the bottom line. Those walking in the light follow God and everyone else is living in darkness. The saints of the light have been qualified and those in darkness have not been qualified. If anything, because of their sin and rebellion, they are automatically disqualified. The metaphor of light and darkness is powerful. When you are in the light, you see clearly because of what God has done in your life. When you're in darkness, nothing makes sense. A person walking in darkness believes the lies, right? Here's an example of the, of the power of light. Um, for, I don't know if you know this, but for about 10 years, I worked in property management. And uh, it was a particular complex I worked at in Little Canada, Minnesota. And uh, in the winter, uh, it got dark earlier, obviously, but we stayed open. 
there are many, many times I'd be shown apartments in the dark. And this pattern emerged when I began to show and rent apartments to people at night. They come in, no natural light, some light switches of course, and they may rent the apartment, but then a week later, complaints. They didn't see things. They didn't see everything, they didn't catch everything. That pattern is so clear. They, they did not see clearly. They needed more light. My overall point is reinforced if you consider what it would be like for a person to consider running an apartment in complete darkness. <laughs> the light reveals truth and allows a person to see clearly. In a spiritual sense, light helps us to see and know the truth about God. Unfortunately, darkness is not just a physical state like standing in the middle of a dark room. Darkness is actually a power over a soul. The word used to explain darkness in verse 13 is domain. I do not think the English word for domain captures the, the nature of spiritual darkness. I think this passage is more accurately understood as authority or power of darkness. The forces of darkness that lied to Adam and Eve in the garden are still at work. The authority or power of darkness is keeping people from knowing God. In this battle for souls, what is the path toward redemption? How do we go from darkness to light? The path toward redemption requires being transferred, verse 13, from the domain of darkness into the light. It says in this passage, a person must be transferred into the, into the kingdom of Jesus. So we see this other contrast being pitted against darkness. A person is either part of one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of the devil, which is darkness, or the kingdom of Jesus. So how does a person who by nature is seemingly a part of the kingdom of darkness become a part of the kingdom of light? The simple answer is profound. It's faith. But faith in what exactly? How is faith obtained so that a person can be redeemed? If you want to be part of the kingdom of the Son, you need to have faith in what the Son has done and what the Son represents. What has the Son done? The Son has done what you cannot do for yourself. Because of the fall, your rebellion and sin has been an affront against God. Every time you sin, it's like slapping God in the face and then walking away. And because God is good and holy and just, he can have nothing to do with sin. Left to yourself, guess what? Your condemnation is just. My condemnation is just. You do not deserve redemption. You deserve the full weight of God's wrath and justice. That's what you deserve, and that's what I deserve. In our uh, entitlement culture, we are not used to hearing we don't deserve something. We say, I, I deserve that, I deserve that, I get that. But because of your sin and sin nature, you immediately disqualify yourself from being in the presence of God. With Adam and Eve, you've been kicked out of the garden. You do not deserve redemption, you deserve wrath. 
but because God is merciful. The son was sent to be the payment for your sin. The wrath that should have been directed toward you has been directed toward the son. The death of the son is so that you could have life in the son. Anyone who has been given faith to believe the son has been redeemed. And what else do we read from verse 14? Through the death of the son, your debt because of sin has not just been atoned for, that has happened, but all people who have redemption through the son have been forgiven of sin. Therefore, God the Father is not sitting in heaven looking to condemn you at every moment. Romans 8, 1 again, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a precious truth for the redeemed. God the Father is not waiting around to see his sons and daughters trip up. No. God the Father no longer sees your unrighteousness, but he sees the righteousness of Jesus covering you like a robe. God the Father, because of the redeeming work of Christ, declares you forgiven. You are a forgiven son or daughter if you've been given the gift of faith. Just pause for a moment. Just really let that settle. When I, when I, when I preach, you guys know this, I, I don't ask you to do anything, right? I preach, you guys listen. But I'm asking you to do something right now. Nothing embarrassing. You don't have to talk, don't have to move. I just want you to do an inventory of all the sins you've committed in the past. Think about all the things you did wrong growing up. Perhaps consider the sins you committed today. Have you ever gossiped or slandered? What about the website you should not have visited? Have you ever lashed out in unjustified anger? Have you ever been a difficult spouse? What about the small lie you thought you could get away with? Maybe you did. Go ahead, do the inventory. I could, I could, if I did an inventory right now, I'd be up here for the rest of the day. I'll wait. And now I want you to think about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Nails went through his wrists and feet so that you could be redeemed and forgiven of your sin. The crown of thorns that was pressed against his skull caused him to bleed. Jesus bled so that you could be redeemed and forgiven. Jesus took on the mocking while slowly dying on the cross so that you could be redeemed and forgiven. It does not matter what sin you have committed. The redemptive work of Christ at the cross is stronger and more powerful. Christian, you have been redeemed and forgiven. All this is truly amazing. What God has done in Christ to redeem rebellious sinners is stunning. But you want to know what? There is more to having faith in the Son. A quick word search in the Bible to the word redemption, you could do this at home in five minutes, reveals more details about what it means for a person to be redeemed and how a person is redeemed. I'm, I'm going to quote at length Ephesians 1. Ryan quoted it. We did not connect ahead of time. And he, he rightly was tuning in to this particular 
topic of redemption. Listen closely to when your redemption was established. This is, this is one of the most beautiful passages, in my view, in Scripture. Ephesians 1, 3, this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Listen this. Even as he chose us, that word chose is electos in the Greek, which does mean election. Even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. One more verse. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. So before Genesis 1-1 was a reality, God knew, God purposed, God elected you to salvation, God redeemed you before the foundation of the world, God chose you, Christian, to have faith in the Son. Your faith in redemption is not an accident. Your faith in redemption is an act of love from God. Praise God for all that he has done through Christ. So if you are a part of the redeemed, how can you apply redemption, right? Sometimes applying redemption involves reestablishing the truth of redemption and the implications of being redeemed. For example, you are forgiven. Let that sink in. Live in such a way with joy because you've been forgiven by God. Imagine how much joy you could have if you truly believe you've been forgiven of all your sin, past, present, future. Now, you don't live in such a way where you continue to sin. No, you live in such a way where you honor and glorify God with your life for all that he has done for you to forgive you of your sins. We should be the happiest people on this earth because of what Christ has done for us, to redeem us, to forgive us. Apply that. On the drive home, spouses perhaps talk to each other. Talk about how to apply that in your life right now. To not only believe in that truth, but just let it soak in and live in such a way in light of the truth. How about this? If you believe you've been redeemed, you can be at peace. Hey, we live in such an anxious world. We all know 2020 is a train wreck and it's making everyone anxious, right? But you can be at peace. God adopted you into his family and in his family is a spirit of peace. If you have been redeemed, you can also rest. Rest that is in Christ. One more. If you have been redeemed, you have hope. You have hope while living in this broken world. This world is full of trouble, but you have hope in a day when God will fix the brokenness. God will finally and fully restore a world that is groaning for a complete redemption. I think of Romans 8:22. Creation is groaning. The souls of God's elect have been redeemed. 
but the work is not done. All things will eventually be redeemed, which is what we will talk about next week. So, we are Redemption Hill Church, located in possibly one of the flattest states in the Union, save Nebraska. (laughs) The greatest act of redemption took place on a hill. That name is not an accident. It is a reminder, a reminder to you, a reminder to me of all that God has done in Christ to redeem and to forgive. We praise him for all that he has done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good work you have done and the good work that you continue to do. And so, God, even as we move into a time of communion and as we sing one more time, may we have thankful hearts. May we live with joy because of your good work. May the May our redemption not just be an idea, but a reality in which we live out. Because we know it's for our good, and it's also for the honor and glory of your name. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.